Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, and it is such a pleasure to be here with you each and every week, exploring the threads of what it means to be humans woven into this earth. This week, I am bringing back the most popular guest ever here on the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, the absolutely incredible, delightful, and the very well-researched Lily Nichols. We are talking about her new book that is released today, February 14th, 2024. Happy Valentine's Day, all of you lovers. And we are talking about Real Food for Fertility, which is a book, honestly, for everybody. It's for pregnant women. It's for men and women that are thinking about conceiving. But it is also for those of us that aren't thinking about conceiving because so much of our fertility is the base of our health. And it's one of the first things to go. So when we are eating for fertility, we are also eating just for our own health, whether we're thinking about conceiving or not. I cannot tell you how deeply researched this book is. There are over 2,500 citations in the book, and Lily dove deep into the literature to tease out the nuance around what is truly supporting us in fertility in Whole Foods. And it is an incredible, it is an incredible book. And she did this in conjunction with her co-author, Lisa Hendrickson Jack. And together, Lisa is the author of The Fifth Vital Sign and has a fantastic podcast centered around fertility. This is just, it is a whirlwind. I read the whole thing twice. It is absolutely stellar and I cannot recommend it enough. I feel that this is the book on fertility, on considering whole foods for optimizing health uh, across across the board. And it was just a pleasure to get to sit down with Lily for a second time. And I am linking to our previous episode together where we explore her books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and have a lot of conversations too. And this always interests me in the things that we know about farm animals uh, and livestock in terms of their pregnancy, their fertility, their health, 
that we don't apply to humans. And we get into that a little bit on this episode too. So I recommend checking out that first episode as well as this one. And it is just, it's such a delight to have guests back and to get to explore some of these broader themes. And I really do believe that Lily's work speaks to the the hope we have for the future. And when I look at this, I see that the fertility of soil health really mirrors that of human health and that there are many mirrors and interconnected spaces within land health and human health and health of communities. And so it's fun for this to begin to connect a lot of the dots that we are exploring on the podcast in a very different way. It is really fun for me to get to touch on human health and ecosystem health and community health and for there to be some broader themes that begin to emerge. And my hope with some of the episodes that we have coming up is that we'll explore some of these foundational ideas of infrastructure in a lot of different ways, not just in the human body, but also infrastructure we find outside and how it is affecting us and some of the materials outside of food that we move closer to us and some of the resources that exist in this world and how we're building relationships with them. So if you're new to the podcast, I hope that you'll stick around for some awesome some explorations and some incredible authors and experts that we have coming up on the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. As always, if you enjoy this and you wouldn't mind if you could hit that subscribe button and leave a rating and review, it really helps other earballs find their way to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. And I deeply appreciate it myself. I am so grateful for all of you listeners who have stuck with me and are here to explore these topics. Without further ado, here is the incredible Lily Nichols. Just taken with how comprehensive the book is and that it, it does feel like, okay, we have made a really great resource for people in all things fertility and can kind of put this to bed until more research really, really begins to rise to the top. Yeah. Well, thank you. We aimed for it to be comprehensive. And, and it is so <laughs> comprehensive. I want to start in the funniest place. And since it's right behind you, I think it's, I think it's really appropriate because as I was reading the title page, I realized that you had made the embryo on the cover art. And yes, I, I don't usually talk about titles or cover art on the podcast because I think it's one of those things where it indicates that maybe you didn't actually read the book. But <laughs> this felt really special to me because I think it, especially in more science and research heavy disciplines and books to have this beautiful piece of art that you had made, uh, it, it really tickled me to balance that that side of your brain with a little bit of creativity. Yes, yes, for sure. We really belabored what we should put on the cover, especially because I felt like with Real Food for Pregnancy, which is like also that's behind me, you know, I have an array of food 
splayed out on the cover and I'm like, well, I don't feel like I can take another like food photo. Both of my other books had photos. Um, so I was like, what do we do? And I was like, well, maybe something with watercolor. And then I had seen online some online, some uh, watercolor embryos that caught my eye. I was like, well, that's kind of a nice representation for fertility. What represents fertility, right? There's a lot of things that are, have just been done too many times, um, like a chicken egg or something or uh-huh. an avocado or a pomegranate. And I was like, maybe a bee visiting a flower. And we went through many different iterations. And I was Pass finally like, you know what? I like this watercolor embryo idea. And I had mocked some up. And it just looked kind of too empty on the cover to only have an embryo in there. And I was like, okay, maybe we do need to bring some food, but we'll do watercolor food. And so I actually hired an artist to do watercolor foods. I kind of mocked up which foods I wanted and where, and then had her paint them. Because although I do have an art background, I'm not um, like a realistic watercolor artist. (laughs) I'm not not super practiced in that, at least currently. And I actually did have a watercolor embryo mocked up by an artist and I was just not happy with it. I was like, you know what? Like abstract stuff I can do. And I know the colors we want and I know like the amount of detail we want. And um, we kind of wanted to show like the movement, you know, as the cell starts. So uh, yeah, we're, we're both happy with how it came out. I don't think I had painted anything in years. I really have barely painted since college. Um, but I'm glad it worked out and I think it works well with all the foods, everything on there, you know, showing visually how the foods are supportive of this whole process. It does. And I just, I just think it's fantastic and it does have a ton of movement and I just love that, that it's from, it's from you. I think that's a really special little detail. I actually wanted to start us out talking about why we would optimize a body for fertility in the first place. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how a body optimized for fertility is optimized for life and not just the creation of life, but also the living of it. And that when you're optimizing for fertility, you're also just optimizing for your health. And so I think in many ways, this book is for people that are trying to conceive, people that know that they want to try to conceive in the future, people that are not trying to conceive, as well as both for men and women. And and so I just want to emphasize how important the idea of fertility is to our underlying health and optimization. When you think about what our bodies need to survive and what are like the essential functions for survival, reproduction is like at the end of that list, Mm -hmm. your body is not going to produce optimal quality eggs, ovulate regularly, prepare your endometrial lining to receive if an egg is, is in fact ovulated and fertilized to receive it for implantation. Like all of those things, like the first thing that your body will pull back on if it is not adequately resourced and is not at a place where it literally feels safe. And that can apply on like many different levels, not just nutritionally, but like emotionally and as well. It will pull back on reproduction. It will cease ovulation. Um, it will even, you know, slow down sperm production in, in men as well. Um, but that is the first thing that your body is like, okay, this 
vessel is not safe to receive a baby at this time and grow a baby. Um, and so it pulls back. So whether or not you want to have kids, essentially, at least when we're talking about women, simply maintaining an ovulatory monthly menstrual cycle, one in which you could get pregnant if you wanted to, is a sign that your body is well-resourced nutritionally because it, it won't, won't do that if you don't have enough. And when you look at some of the like uh, anthropological data from cultures there was, you know, seasonality to birth rates where, and we talk about this in the book, where it, it aligns with the time where when the pregnancy has taken place, there was a great abundance of food. And during seasons where maybe it's very dry and you don't have as much abundance with crops and your grazing animals do not have rapidly growing green grass, to give a nod back to uh, Dr. Price, um, then you would have lower conception rates during that time. And even in some cultures, and I found this very interesting, they would sometimes intentionally withhold really nutrient-dense foods from couples if for whatever reason in the tribe or community, it was not an optimal time to bring more more babies into the tribe. They would withhold those nutrient-dense foods from their couples of childbearing age to slow fertility <laughs> I mean, like, and do the opposite when it was time to bring more babies into the community. They would go to extra efforts to bring in fish and shellfish and organ meats and eggs and full fat raw dairy and all these things to the couples to improve their fertility, to improve ovulation, to improve sperm production. We now have like the science behind why those things do support this um, but it's, it's fascinating from a historical perspective, how it was actually used both for the positive and, you know, the opposite effect of, of slowing down for fertility. I had a big note on this to, to even start there. I feel like you're, you're reading directly from my notes, um, <laughs> because I thought it was so interesting. And I know that on our last episode, we talked a lot about things that we know about animals that we, uh, uh animals that are not humans, humans are also an animal that we don't right. apply to the human animal. And, you know, one thing that we know about animals is that first of all, a lot of them have seasonal estrus, but also most of them conceive in months of plenty. Um, mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about domestic or wild animals, you know, you have a season of rut for deer and elk and pronghorn that is going to be representative of them coming off of the most nutrient dense summer grasses when their bodies yeah. are the most primed for the creation of life. And yeah. I had never in all of my reading, I had not seen looking at those conception times often coincides with these periods of abundance and sometimes was even done on purpose where nutrients were withheld or given in yeah. order to better facilitate conception rates within a group of people. It's fascinating, isn't it? I was not expecting to come across that. That was an mm -mm. accidental find. I was trying to look into the foods that were emphasized in, in different um, indigenous groups and interestingly came across quite a bit of research on what they withheld, which speaks to <laughs> exactly what they try to, uh, you know, encourage when the time is right. 
And speaks to, I think, the abundance of innate wisdom that is occurring, that there has been an understanding of foods and practices that were really good for fertility for an incredibly long time. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe something that we have actually lost in more recent history, uh, not gained. Definitely. Definitely. I agree. Um, it is that time of year where Irene Lyon is launching her amazing Smart Body, Smart Mind program. I want to take a brief moment to talk about this. Irene has been a guest on the podcast two times where we have gotten a huge chance to discuss all things related to the nervous system. We talk a lot about the ways in which our modern world can disconnect us here on the podcast and what it means to come back to this interconnected web of self, of nature, and of community. In a sea of healing modalities and somatic-based practices like breathwork, one of the fundamentals can be addressing the nervous system. And I know this was the case for me when I embarked on Irene's 21-day nervous system tune-up. I've had a chance to do some of her work and have been amazed how these seemingly simple yet deeply complex exercises have brought me back into a feeling of safety in my body. This is deep cellular, biological, neurochemical, trauma healing nervous system work, and Irene teaches it with grace and aplomb. I'm serious when I say that you will not find a better teacher than Irene. The best part? Once you join her Smart Body, Smart Mind cohort, you can join all future cohorts with programs running one to two times a year. So this is an evergreen program where you can go at your own pace, healing your own nervous system in conjunction with Irene's teachings. Registration is open now, February 13th through the 22nd of this year. That's 2024. You can follow the link in the show notes to join this year's Smart Body, Smart Mind with Irene Lyon and to find the previous podcasts with Irene. Something that's come up a lot on the podcast, and I, I think it's interesting to kind of peel back the layers for this, is the idea of a shifting baseline. Um, and so as as different things within our environment and within human health change, it becomes the new normal for certain generations. And I'm really struck when you look at fertility research and just the precipitous nature of declines in fertility for both men and women over the last 40, 50, 70 years, that with that has come a lot of these shifting baselines. And so some examples of this that kind of crop up in the book are shifting baselines, I think, for menstrual pain. The idea that mm -hmm. PMS pain is, is a foregone conclusion. It's definitely going to happen um, when, when maybe that isn't necessarily the case. Um, shifting baseline for sperm counts. Uh, detail in the book that the World Health Organization over the last 40 years has really moved the dial on decreasing the, the baseline for health for sperm motility and morphology. Um, and as well as just a shifting baseline for our expectations for fertility as it's declined. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to draw, to draw attention to this because I think that some of what's come out of conversations around shifting baselines on the podcast is that 
we can't begin to protect or change or value what we don't know. And so as these become just the standard and the new normal, and I'm putting that in big right. quotations, uh, we don't have as much of a drive to say, okay, well, we actually need to get back to a, a different baseline. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the sperm quality changes are really shocking. Not only what, what is average uh, for men, but how they have adjusted downward what they consider normal. Yes. Um, it's shocking. And we have a chart in that chapter showing how they've changed over the decades. And it's like, it's not it's a little. actually insane. <laughs> it's not a little, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. They have shifted a lot. Um, I think like so many things we're, it's like lab reference ranges, you know, what is a, what is our, how do they set the recommended amounts of nutrients or the mm-hmm. recommended thyroid ranges? And a lot of times you're just looking at what is observed in a population and then saying, well, that must be normal. And it's, it's not, um, it's certainly not optimal. It's average. This might be average for the time that we're in right now, but is it optimal? Clearly not. I mean, male and male factor infertility is in, that's a, 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 contributor to at least 50% of infertility cases. And in 20 to 30%, it's solely the man who is infertile. Um, This gets into like a different rant where everything, the onus always seems to be placed on the woman. Um, But it's really frightening to think about what could be our future if this, you know, fertility decline continues. Yes. Yes, and that that really is. I think that this book is about the future in many ways, because when we're talking about fertility, when we're talking about egg and sperm health, we are talking about the next generation. And I think we are also talking to this when we speak to the fact that your any child that that a person carries is carrying the eggs, any female child is also carrying the eggs for that next generation. And so this is about not just our children, but our children's children. Um, And fertility is about our future. Yeah, it is. And the quality of the genetics, you know, with sperm, for example, they can measure DNA fragmentation. Um, The quality of the genetics are, are a reflection of the health of the creator of that egg or sperm, right? Um, and that absolutely influences chances of conception, whether implantation will take place properly. If implantation doesn't go as well as planned, A, it could be a miscarriage, you know, it can be a pregnancy loss, or there can be issues with the placenta forming, which issues with the placenta forming can lead to pregnancy complications, which ultimately also can result in at the very worst fetal loss, but also issues with the baby's growth. You know, they, they call them deep placentation disorders and Mm. they underscore a lot of the major complications in pregnancy, um, including things like preeclampsia or preterm birth. So it like all of it, (laughs) all of it actually matters. Um, and even though I've written so much about pregnancy, you know, the elephant in the room is like, well, what about 
beforehand? What about what you should do ahead of time? And that is the most challenging from a healthcare perspective. That's always the most challenging time to reach people because they're not necessarily, at least on like a larger population level, maybe your audience is thinking about it a little more ahead of time, but on a larger population level, they're often not thinking what I do now could affect my future child. Do you think, oh, it's only what I eat during pregnancy that has any impact? So once I'm pregnant, I'll like clean things up a bunch, but it's like, actually, no, if you go all the way back to when that little, um, undeveloped follicle was recruited. I mean, you're going back upwards of like eight months and then, you know, fast forward to about the three months prior to conception is arguably when your nutrient intake and nutrient stores probably has the largest effect on, on egg quality. But, um, nonetheless, like whenever you want to focus on improving your diet and lifestyle, it, there's going to be benefits down the line in your health of your ovulatory function, the health of the egg, the health of your endometrial lining, which ultimately does serve as like the first uh, food source for that implanted embryo. That's like really crucial and also interfaces with like, that's where the placenta is going to form and embed. So like if your endometrial lining isn't healthy, you have some issues there. And that's ultimately reflected in how healthy is your menstrual cycle? How healthy is your flow? Like all of these things are connected. Um, And that's actually a big reason that I wanted to co-author this book with Lisa was for her to bring in her expertise on the menstrual cycle as well. So we could kind of combine the best of our own individual areas of expertise because it's all so interrelated. Yes. Absolutely. And I think it speaks to the idea that our bodies are completely interrelated in ways that I think at times we're only beginning to understand and that our bodies are this complex. And I think something that you and Lisa do so well within the context of the book is to explain that our bodies are are an interplay between systems. We have the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access or gonadal access, but they're also an interplay between us and our environment. And that includes the food that we eat and the toxins that we take in, the air we breathe, the stress and relationships that we have in life, that these are very complex, multifactorial explorations into what creates that that fertility, this thing that is so vital, whether we're trying to conceive or not, and just how far back it goes, this three to eight month on-ramp um, to really preparing a body and preparing these gametes in, in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, that's why we had to include a chapter on both egg and sperm quality too. We wanted to make sure that, that you know, that it takes two to tango <laughs> point is really driven home because yeah. it does. In every way. I mean, not only is that child a mix of egg and sperm, but the placenta is a mix of both egg yes. and sperm with some influence too from the resulting child. It is sort of a an effort of all all three parties. And and yes. so I think there's some some really beautiful aspects to this too, that it does, that it does take two to tango and that this is a combined effort. Yes, for sure. Um, 
I wanted just so we could set the scene and because I think that this is this is such an interesting thing. I wanted to talk a little bit about the ideal idea of essential versus non-essential. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something that I think is really interesting and actually harkens back again, you know, to things that maybe we acknowledge about raising livestock that we don't necessarily acknowledge about humans. But I think that the conversation that you have in the book about essential versus non-essential amino acids and things that are conditionally essential and things that are maybe, maybe they're essential after all. And I was wondering if you would speak to that just a little bit. Yeah. Nutrition science, we want to even call it a science, uh, has made a lot of assumptions over the years. And I think Early on, when they were doing these sort of like depletion studies, you like take things out of people's diets and see if they can survive or animals' diets and see if they can survive. I mean, that's kind of like the lowest threshold for like essentiality of a nutrient. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I mean, it goes beyond just this type of research, but that really set the foundation for quite a few assumptions in nutrition science with amino acids. If we know that the body can create an amino acid from another one, we call it non-essential. Okay. Meaning you probably don't have to worry about getting this amino acid from your diet because given sufficient amounts of other amino acids, which you're probably consuming, you could just make it. So we don't really need to worry about it. Now, recently, that whole theory of essential and non-essential amino acids was completely, essentially debunked. Um, I think the researchers said something to the effect of, um, it's never scientifically been proven. Nowadays, we have different research methods that have we have been developed like in the last 20 years or so where we can actually measure like the oxidation level of different amino acids and we can see oh wow we actually use a lot of glycine or taurine or creatine or carnitine some of these amino acids that have always been considered non-essential And then you measure how much the body can actually produce from the other amino acids. And it's often not enough to meet the body's demands for optimal function, right? For survival, yeah, your body can make do with all kinds of deficiencies. Seriously, people can live for a really long time with like very severe deficiencies. A lot of things are not going to kill you, but again, In the context of what we're talking about, we're talking about optimal function. And if your body is functioning optimally, you will also be able to, for the most part, uh, maintain fertility. Or maybe I should say it in the opposite. Like if you're not optimally nourished, fertility probably is not going to be optimal either, right? Um, So there's a number of amino acids that we long considered non-essential, which it turns out maybe we actually do need to think about consuming them um, for our body to really function well. And that is um, one point that I dive into 
quite a bit, not only in like the protein section of like the, where I'm talking about macronutrients, but I also go into a lot more detail on this um, in the vegetarian chapter, because I think this is a, a missing part of the discussion on whether or not those diets can truly optimally fuel the human body. Um, and I've personally never seen a resource dive into that level mm. of detail. People usually just go kind of surface level, whether you can combine proteins and make a complete protein by combining different plant foods, but they're never going into the so-called non-essential amino acids part of the discussion. You dive into such beautiful detail, and I also have never seen a, a resource that really dives into what the literature says. And I think you unpack a couple of important things that maybe we could give an overview of here. And I think one of them is the way that animal protein is is talked about within different scientific papers. You know, you talk about this this trend where studies leave out positive findings on animal protein um, or yeah. misinterpret data or fail to acknowledge certain aspects of things, which really... Yeah asks us to do a closer reading of the of the data yeah. in the first place because it might be in some ways misrepresented. And I think that this is actually something there was a there was a great article um, in the free press a little bit ago where he talked about the way that he had couched his his specific paper and tailored it to what he knew more prestigious academic journals wanted to hear. Um, <laughs> and so that there are a lot of different ways that this can kind of be shaped. I want to I, I want to try to be a little bit diplomatic here uh, within the scientific literature yeah. that might leave that out. And, and you also look at this through the lens of a couple of different popular diets that that have really been touted for fertility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first off, like diving into the role of protein on like menstrual cycle regularity, um, ovulatory function, and then the role of all these different amino acids like that, that is en enlightening in and of itself. Then you start to look at dietary types that tend to result in ovulatory disturbances, um, or menstrual cycle issues. They're pretty much one in the same. Um, like a vegetarian diet, highly associated with a greater risk of having ovulatory issues. Um, and just PMS as a whole, which, which sort of struck me. Yeah. Which is often really uh, a sign of insufficient progesterone mm -hmm. production. Um, and you get into the research on fertility. I'm telling you, researching fertility is about, I mean, I was shocked how much more difficult it is to research than pregnancy. Your search terms are so lengthy and complex and more need to be more specific than pregnancy to actually pull up good data. And a lot of it is very limited. And, and in addition, a lot of it is highly biased. So some of this research will they're often like 
observational studies or cohort studies where they're they're just looking at what people consumed and what were the outcomes for their fertility or ovulatory function or whatever. Um, and oftentimes they'll create like dietary patterns out of it or maybe give a score that's like mm-hmm. in favor of or assumed to have a negative effect mm-hmm. against fertility. And those certainly the factors that they're choosing is all really up to the researcher's discretion. So highly susceptible to bias. So some of these studies you'll see where they're like ranking a, what they think is a fertility supportive diet, you know, they'll of course always give positive points to really anything standard dietary guidelines. So you'll get positive points for um, fruits and vegetables um, whole grains, beans and legumes, nuts and seeds. You'll usually get negative points for added fats and oils. Um, dairy really highly depends on the study, whether they rank it positive or negative. Um, meat is pretty much always on the negative side. Trans fats on the negative side. Um, smoking, alcohol, inactivity, those usually count on the detrimental side. So when you aggregate that all together and you've lumped meat into the bad category, (laughs) you're making an assumption that it's always bad. Um, And then that's not actually always the case. Um, Studying dietary patterns is really complicated. I mean, when you look at some of the, the studies on male fertility, they're looking at, they actually have a categorization called meat and french fries it's like clearly people who are eating a lot of meat aren't following any of the other rules right Mm -hmm. so the people who are eating the most meat just didn't hear that meat's bad for you right and they're eating all the french fries the soft drinks the added sugar drinking a bunch of beer um you know and for a standard american diet that is often the case but what about somebody who's eating a really well-balanced whole food food diet that happens to include meat. Um, The effects of that wouldn't necessarily be caught in a study design that is ranking one factor against the other. And then just as a more general concept, some of these studies that have looked at like where the protein is coming from and whether it is positively or negatively associated with fertility. And some of these studies, I I talk about several um, in chapter five. I'm thinking of one in particular where they're giving like an odds ratio for some sort of adverse outcome um, related to fertility for the various different types of protein. And the title of the study was something to the effect of plant protein supports fertility and animal protein harms ovulatory function. Um, I'm butchering the title, but it's something to that effect. But when you actually go into the data table of the study where they're actually listing the odds ratios for all of these different protein foods, not all of the animal proteins were associated with detrimental effects on ovulatory function, and not all of the plant proteins were associated with better ovulatory function. They absolutely cherry-picked from their data and like left out the fact that red meat did not harm, harm ovulatory function whatsoever, but they just wanted to lump all the animal proteins together and call them all bad and lump all the plant proteins together and call them all good. And that's just not what was true. 
Um, but that's what's published. That's what's in the abstract. When you have a healthcare professional who's really busy and just scanning headlines, scanning abstracts, that's what they'll say. see. They're not going to go in. They're not going to bother downloading the study, opening it up, reading through the data tables, seeing if the abstract and conclusion, the title of the study, accurately reflected the findings. And I found this many more times than one. This wasn't just a chance occurrence. I think that this is really important because it means that we actually have to be looking at the data as opposed to just taking it at the face value that researchers are giving it to us. Um, and I, I think that this is actually becoming in increasingly, increasingly true and that it's incredibly important that we do this. I also, I mean, not everybody has access to even looking at some of these papers to begin with. Um, right. and, and this is something that I actually think about a lot is, is how, how separate and how hard it is to access research studies in the first place, um, even for healthcare professionals, much less any lay person who wants to take a, a closer look at the data. Absolutely. And it's very time consuming to find all the studies, to read them all, to kind of aggregate your conclusions from them. Um, it's, yeah, it's shocking. It's time consuming. It's not something that everybody wants to do. <laughs> and you did this for this book. And I think that this is incredible. And I think that the creation of this chapter where you really dive into the effects of protein on, on health for fertility, for pregnancy, and the effects of not having enough animal-based protein and nutrients on it is comprehensive and thorough and desperately needed within this conversation. Um, and so I yeah. want to thank you for doing that. And I think one of the things that you said was that this is something that is not just beneficial for fertility, animal, animal foods, but perhaps protective of fertility. And I think yeah. there's some important nuance in there in just how critical animal protein and, you know, whether we're talking about macronutrients or micronutrients are is for fertility. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I dive in pretty heavily into the micronutrient component and the amino acid component, but even just looking at it from a macronutrient balance um, perspective, um, caloric adequacy, <laughs> you know, a lot of people who eat a vegetarian or vegan diet are not eating enough food, period. Mm -hmm. um, I was and, really struck by that. Yeah, low energy availability. I mean, you will create a situation of amenorrhea, like ovulation will stop taking place um, if it's not well resourced. But more so than that, I mean, you dive into the hypothalamic amenorrhea research, and that's even more fascinating because many of these women are by choice vegetarian or plant based. Um, but possibly some of them may be choosing that as a means of controlling their body size and as a means of kind of hiding an eating disorder. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you look at the, you know, macronutrient breakdown of a lot of these women who have hypothalamic amenorrhea, it's not that they're not eating enough carbs, which is 
from what I see in the conventional nutrition space, everyone's like, don't fear the carbs. They're always like trying to encourage people to eat more carbs. And yet like of the calories they're consuming, like almost three quarters of them are carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Like they're specifically restricting themselves way too much in their consumption of fat and protein. Um, which again, where do you get most of your fat and protein concentrated animal foods, right? So whichever way you slice it, I mean, whether you're looking at it from a micronutrient perspective, um, sufficient amount of calories, the right, like balance of fat, protein, and carbohydrates. And if you just talk to some practitioners who work in this space and see clients yourself, you see the women who are often struggling, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like this is the only reason there's fertility challenges. There's all sorts of reasons there's fertility challenges, but many times you see more fertility challenges, um, when animal foods are restricted in the diet. And ironically, this is a, this is a situation where it's like by choice, you know, we're making Mm -hmm. a choice, um, not to consume them. For so many different reasons, um, I don't need to get into all the different reasons, but that's a choice you're making. It's not like you're in this community or tribe and it's the dry season and you don't have enough food. It's like, this is a choice that's being made. And so you can also make the choice to not continue to deprive yourself in that way um, and just watch for a few months. Once you start eating more of those foods, watch and see what happens. You often do see your menstrual cycle return or begin to normalize over time. Um, so yeah, it's a vital conversation because especially with how like popular plant-based diets are and how much they're being pushed on us and how much even a lot of this fertility research that's so biased is pushing that same narrative that is not helping people restore their fertility. It's actually harming it. And that is really shocking and disappointing to me. Hi, hello. We're gonna have a little interruption. And one thing I wanna say is these ads are coming from a very genuine place and I hope to sort of weave them into the conversations that we're having. Because you'll know that here on the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, I am not big on accumulating more stuff. But I am big on those few things that I feel really support me in my life. My bedding is definitely one of those places. We spend almost a third of our life in sleep and in bed, and I want the materials that surround me to be supportive and conducive to my well-being. This is just another form of nutrition. It's sleep nutrition. That's why I love Home of Wool. We've been sleeping around natural fibers for all of human history, and wool is treasured for its ability to regulate temperature, keeping you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Its antimicrobial and antibacterial properties means it's resistant to mold, mildew, and mites, and it's also a truly renewable and biodegradable material. That means that when you're done with your bedding, you can just toss it in your compost pile. 
Home of Wool also offers you the opportunity to build custom bedding. That's a body pillow to your specs, cushions to your specifications. They have pillows, body pillows, cushions, bean bags, nursing pillows, mattresses for both kids and adults, and so much more. And all of these fit and nourish your family. They are free of VOCs, flame retardants, and chemical compounds that are commonly found in other bedding materials. You can build out custom bedding with the best Ecotex and GOTS certified fabrics with organic wool by going to homeofwool.com. That's homeofwool.com to build out a whole new sleep routine for you and your family, and you get 10% off using the code Kate Kavanaugh. That's my name, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H, which will get you 10% off of your first purchase at homeofwool.com. What I was going to say is that I think we have a, a really interesting opportunity with menstruation as a fifth vital sign that research is great. And, and, and you've done such a beautiful job of parsing out the research. And I think it's a wonderful way to peek into the body. But I never want that to take away from the idea that our body gives us pretty immediate feedback on what we are doing without us having to consult an outside source. And so this gives everybody a really great, like we can talk about the nitty gritty of eggs and what they're made of and their quality and what might affect that. But ultimately, you are going to see changes in your dietary habits made manifest in a number of different things, Uh, your your period and monthly cycle being one of those things, but also in your mood and your sleep and your, you know, general emotional outlay, all these different pieces are are there for us. And so there is this opportunity to just be in of one and to adopt a some animal foods into your diet and see what it does to your body for three months. Yep. It yep. can be as simple as that. Yep. It's as easy and it's as hard as that. Um, yeah. There's a lot of pushback to it, right? Um, This is the first time, you know, when I wrote Real Food for Pregnancy, I did put in a little section on the challenges of a vegetarian diet. I like stuck it at the end of chapter three. I almost didn't even put it in the book because I'm like, this book is about what's optimal. Why am I even spending time talking about what's not optimal? And then the feedback from some of my early reviewers was like, no, that section was really good. It does need to stay there. Um, But you're definitely like, putting your neck out and also opening yourself up to a ton of criticism to like take that stand. Um, But that is probably the section of that book that I got thanked for the most. The gap though, is that I don't go into the practical, I do talk about tips to optimize a vegetarian diet and like maybe some tweaks, some animal foods you Mm -hmm. might consider incorporating, Mm -hmm. but I don't talk about the how And that is a question that I get repeatedly. It's like, well, how do I do this? Where do I start? I I kind of want to start including some animal foods, but which ones do I choose? How do I do it? And then of course, like all of the, um, all of the reasons that the person has been on a vegetarian diet kind of come into play as well. Well, oh, I don't want to eat that because this reason, I don't want to eat that because that reason. I mean, there's, everybody will have a different path if they choose to reincorporate animal foods. And that is something that I decided to break down in this 
book, since I put, since it was a whole chapter in and of itself, I felt like, okay, we actually need a chapter on this. Um, there's a whole section walking you through the options of how and what to reincorporate and why and kind of what to expect. Um, I don't really care how you go about it. I'm like giving you some of the rationale that you might think through and based on your values, you might choose. And there's plenty of people who maybe don't even need to be on the side of like animal based necessarily, but they need some animal foods. Like sometimes the tiniest bit that's added in, particularly if you happen to be including some of the most nutrient dense ones, you start filling in those micronutrient gaps. It's like, bam, fertility back, like ovulation back on board, menstrual cycle, like 28 days. What? Like you've been anovulatory for years. And sometimes it doesn't actually take that much time for the body to respond. I mean, Nature is trying to find a way. It is absolutely trying to find yes. a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I come back to that all the time. And I always say that I, some of the best things I learned, I learned from Jurassic Park. Um, and and <laughs> life wants to find a way is one of those things. Um, yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I have to, you know, and you and I have had a lot of conversations on Instagram. You do such a good job from, from my perspective as somebody who's been a butcher and worked in the meat industry for a long time of truly giving great information about meat, which I mean, because not everybody knows and understands the ins and outs of meat. And in reading that chapter and some of your recommendations, you know, one of the things owning a butcher shop the last decade as of today um, that I have gotten to witness is I have given many, many people, over 100 people, their first bites of meat again and counseled people through reintroducing meat into their diet, most of them women, most of them in the butcher shop for fertility reasons. And the recommendations that you give for how to go about this and and that a little can go a very long way are yeah. absolutely incredible. And I do just have to compliment you on how great you are um, in terms of looking at whole animal usage and, and talking people through different preparation methods and easing people yeah. into it, um, which is is critically important at times because and and I do want to say this, like our relationship to our food, as you've kind of hinted at, can be very emotional, whether we're talking about yeah. eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea and maybe what that might be masking, or we're talking about vegetarian and vegan diets. This is a an emotional process. And so you really outline a a way forward that is gentle. Yeah. Well, thank you. Compliment received. <laughs> I just mean it because oftentimes I see people really misrepresent meat and, and, and not just in the, in the greater theme of, of meat as a part of diet or meat as a part of environment, but just the, the basics of how to cook and eat it. And so I just, yes, yes. I mean, I've learned a lot along the way. I, I didn't grow up in a heavily meat eating family. I had a lot of vegetarian and and actually some vegan loved ones as well. Certainly plenty of clients who were that way, but um, it's been a long journey to really bringing animal foods more into the center stage of my diet. And um, as far as cooking, most of that was learned just by uh, like out of necessity. Um, I felt compelled, you know, I want to do a cow share and you get all the parts, right? And that is a great initiation into 
how to cook these things when it's sitting there staring at you in the freezer you have that like beef heart sitting there and it's like okay it's been in there for over a year I need to do something with this yeah. when you go <laughs> to get the, the next animal and you're like I need to figure out how to use this yes exactly but then you realize beef heart's actually delicious mm-hmm. um yeah uh it's been a long journey so um yeah when you get a, <laughs> you do a cow share and like other than the ground meat and like some steaks almost everything else requires slow cooking because guess what most meat is uh, attached to a bone and has connective tissue and needs that you know long slow moist cooking uh yeah you learn how to cook it and it's really not that complicated in fact i think it's way easier than cooking me too cuts you just throw it in the pot with some seasonings some liquid put the lid on let it go do its thing all day i mean you can't ruin it but like i'm still not super great at cooking a steak i could still very easily overcook chicken breasts or pork chop right Mm -hmm. um so i think a lot of that is just like in people are in their own head about what they can or can't do in the kitchen and it just takes um doing something a couple times for you to master it you know Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I've repeated to people a lot as a butcher is it's actually harder. Number one, it's actually harder to screw up than you think. And I think that in terms of braising meat, what we were just talking about is that it is, I think it's one of the easiest things you can do. It's set it and forget it. Yeah, Um, totally. And it doesn't have to feel fussy or precious. And I think that that has been oversold to us within sort of chefy culture is that it, it needs this fuss and, and, and preciousness that it really doesn't require. You can just make it easy. I, I, uh, I shudder when I see recipes that have like (laughs) 25 steps. I'm like, can we just make this a little bit easier? You don't need to be doing all of this. One of the things, I mean, and and this is something that I I knew prior to the book, but I think something that struck me is just how much some of these animal foods carry the very nutrients that are forming the backbone of our fertility that are, are true for women and are true for men both. Um, and that, that where these nutrients are the most dense, um, I'm thinking about micronutrients, but also in terms of you are talking about something that is made out of saturated fat mostly and hormones that are made out of their steroid hormones with a cholesterol backbone. Um, that so much of what is critical of fertility really does align with some of these nutrient-dense animal foods and animal foods in general. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, there's even been studies where they put women on a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet and watch what happens to their hormones and their estrogen and progesterone tank. You know, yeah, our body does have backup mechanisms to create cholesterol. If you're not consuming it, your liver will make cholesterol. But even with us relying on that backup mechanism, it can't keep up with the hormone production. They go down. It's kind of the same consideration with the uh, so-called non-essential amino acids, right? Our body has the machinery to do some of these things, but it doesn't do it as efficiently as well can't maintain optimal function without a dietary source. And I I have to wonder, is there a question that we're not asking in there? Is 
those are backup mechanisms for when times are really lean and our bodies want to survive and continue to function. And so why would we be leaning on what is essentially a a biological plan B, plan C, when what we want is for our bodies to function optimally. And I I think that when you're talking about those Mm non-essential or you're talking about a a really low RDA for survival, um, you're talking about supporting a minimum. Yes, exactly. And surviving, not thriving, surviving, not thriving. And I think this also you, you get into this and I know we talked a little bit about this in our, our previous episode, but I like to talk about this across all things, which is we have rate limiting factors too. And so we have these bottlenecks where if you don't have enough of one thing, you're not going to be able to produce it. And, and so, you know, glycine, I think is a really interesting case study. Um, it's a rate limiting factor for the production of glutathione, but you also talk about lysine as a rate limiting factor. And, um, Mm -hmm. anybody who raises hogs will know that any feed source is checked for the exact percentages of life lysine, because it is the rate limiting factor for growth, which when we are growing another human, growth is pretty important. There is so much more common sense in the animal feed industry. (laughs) Um, Even though there's a lot of research is actually done on fertility in animals, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're, you have a whole industry built on animal source foods. You want the piglets to survive. You want them to grow well. You want them to accrue Mm -hmm. mass. I mean, maybe they take it a step too far and start pushing the needle for those animals to become obese, you know, because uh, that marbling tastes good and the animal's bigger. You can get more, more for the more, more meat per pound, um, more for your money. But, um, when you're looking at least at the reproduction side of it, you see especially a lot in, um, you know, the dairy industry, mm-hmm. right? Because they need to get the cow pregnant in order to induce lactation and then keep them lactating for a period of time. And then they dry them up, they get them pregnant again, right? Um, so you see a lot on that. They want that process to be efficient. And so they've very clearly found out how much of everything is needed. It's like, why is there this huge gap with human nutrition? <laughs> yeah, it seems it seems absolutely wild. Um, and I, I actually think to your point, there's also a lot to learn in the ways that we push animals towards obesity, because it has a lot in common with the yes. way that we push humans towards obesity. And, I, you know, I mean, just to just to pick on a point um, that I found really interesting in the book is looking at blood sugar. Um, and there are a lot yes. of studies that show within the context of a confined animal feeding operation where you are feeding a very high carbohydrate diet that you are creating insulin resistance and and perhaps you know, forms of sometimes they're a little bit different depending on animal physiology, diabetes within these animals that would actually cause them to die sooner if they weren't being raised for a short period of time to go into the food system in the first place. And um, I was really struck that First of all, when we're we're talking about ovaries and we're talking about eggs and sperm, we are talking about a cell that is very sensitive to what is going on in the rest of our body in terms of 
blood sugar, in terms of toxin exposure, um, and is engineered to be more resistant to to oxidative stress by being made out of saturated fat um, in the first place. And so I, I... I I was really struck by that, especially because you know that I've been doing some blood sugar experiments on myself. Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. And they, the ovaries have insulin receptors, you know, and the ovaries can become insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. That pretty much sets you up for polycystic ovarian syndrome, Um, insulin resistance and, you know, elevated insulin levels. They go one in one hand and the other, you know, they always pretty much co-occur. that is a component of the vast majority of PCOS cases. And the only way to improve insulin resistance is to improve your blood sugar stability during the day. You don't spike your blood sugar levels as much, and therefore you don't spike your insulin levels as much. And slowly the body can start to like regain you know, homeostasis between the two. Um, but it does take some effort. And to circle back to the protein conversation, <laughs> You're not going to improve blood sugar levels or insulin resistance until you work on your macronutrient balance and bring your protein intake up. Yes. Um, the research on protein and managing insulin resistance is like just absolutely irrefutable. The research on protein consumption, particularly when it happens at the breakfast meal and how that impacts your day-long insulin and glucose mm-hmm. levels irrefutable. You see the exact same thing, whether the person has so-called normal glucose tolerance or is insulin resistant or has full-blown type 2 diabetes, emphasizing protein and a higher protein to carbohydrate ratio at your breakfast pays dividends across the rest of the day, regardless of what else you eat. Because it turns out when your blood sugar is well-balanced in the morning, you don't get those blood sugar slumps and the cravings that coincide with them and you by default to just make better food choices and eat a, an amount of food that's like appropriate for your body without even thinking about it, <laughs> without being instructed or having to measure or portion it, anything. Um, so total protein and protein at breakfast, absolutely vital for fertility as a whole, but particularly if there's an insulin resistance component. Which I think that there, you know, I mean, the, the different studies cite that most 88% of us are metabolically not uh, yeah. optimal. And so it, it, it is more likely than not in many ways that there is going to be some sort of insulin resistance, even in those of us that that have taken care around that. And I think it's interesting, too, that you're talking about the meal that historically within America has been the most carb heavy. Yes, Historically, at least since we started skipping out on the classic farm breakfast, you know, a classic farm breakfast might have eggs and bacon or eggs and sausage. And yeah, there's some carbs there, but in the context of already a fairly high protein meal. um, But yeah, the modern American breakfast is like the cereals and oatmeals and fruit smoothies and toast and jam and coffee loaded up with a whole bunch of sugar. Uh, Yeah does the absolute opposite of supporting our hormone production. Um, Even when you have a case like a woman with hypothalamic amenorrhea who generally has low insulin levels, um, blood sugar balance is still important for them as well. Because since they're of the calories that they are consuming, which is often too low, 
most of them are coming from carbohydrates. And so their blood sugar is all over the map. Their cortisol levels are raised because it's, well, they may be raised for many reasons, but having blood sugar imbalances further worsens your cortisol responses. So for them too, they also need to be thinking about prioritizing their protein. They need to ditch their fear of fat. Um, So they also need that blood sugar stability for different reasons. Uh, They're not fighting insulin resistance but they need that stability. They need their body to sense that there's a consistent amount of fuel and they're not in a, I wouldn't call it a feast or famine because they're often under eating, but they're not in a continual, like little bit of energy famine, little bit of energy famine all day long because that signals to your body, this is, we don't have the resources to support growing a baby right now. So we're just going to pull back on ovulation. It's just not even going to happen right now. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, I was struck by across the book. I mean, within the context of a vegetarian and vegan diet too, I'm just how much we might be overeating carbs and just how essential that we raise protein for women. And also, and I want to get into this a little bit that we touch on on fat because not only has meat been vilified, but fat has been vilified right. too. Um, and I was struck in this by, and I, I said this earlier, the fact that the egg itself is mostly made of saturated fat because it is resistant to oxidization. And I know yeah. that in some of the conversations that we've had in the podcast on, sorry, there's a uh, snow plow going down my road. So I think that's really <laughs> loud. Um, <laughs> on polyunsaturated fatty acids, that there are some early studies that are showing that our cell membranes, which are comprised of a phospholipid bilayer and therefore fat, um, that the ratios of saturated to unsaturated fat within them has begun to change in the presence of a very omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid heavy diet. And so just how important not only protein is, but also animal fat. It's absolutely fascinating. You not only look at how the ratios of fat consumption have changed in our diet, but you see that reflected in human tissues as well. You mentioned cell membranes, but just like fat, human fat stores, you analyze those and they're very highly polyunsaturated nowadays because we're eating so many vegetable oils. I mean, that really is the majority of the fat that people are consuming. And again, you have to go back hundred or so years to look at where were we getting our fat intake. I mean, you can't squeeze a, you know, kernel of corn or a soybean and get oil out of it. No, It's not, it, it takes this huge industrial process in order to even extract the oil, let alone all the other gross processing and chemicals involved. But like, again, going back to that time, where would you get your fat? Like, well, animals. All Drinking milk, right? The cream rises to the top. Very easy to like extract. There's no extracting that needs to be done. You skim it off and you churn your butter or you you know eat the cream as is. When you're raising animals, you get so much fat from a single animal. This was definitely something that struck me when I started doing like a cow share or a pig share um, for eating most of my animal foods is how much fat mm-hmm. you get off of a single animal. I mean, it's more than a family can reasonably consume oh, yeah. a year, which makes sense why it would also be used to like, you know, to, to burn candles, for fuel. 
yeah, candles, soap, like you'd be using the fat for all of these other things because you get so much fat from a single animal. There's no chance you could even begin Mm -hmm. to consume it. Um, So our diets were much more heavily, uh, you know, saturated fats and they're very simple and easy to extract. I mean, yeah, a little bit of heat rendering down a pot of tallow or lard is like, it doesn't even take any brain cells. You just put it all in a pot and, you know, turn it on low and you've got fat melting out of it that you can drain off into a jar and you have so much of it that you're going to make candles and soap out of it as well. Right. Um, So it's very unnatural that we even find ourselves in a position where the majority of fat we're consuming is not from animal foods because it's so difficult to extract if you are operating from that sort of like old fashioned basis and not relying on big food to provide for you. Um, I think that's another example of a shifting baseline in a lot of ways though, right? Is that we have, you know, when you're, and I think a lot of science doesn't, science as a general word, doesn't recognize this as a bias, but when you are taking the modern 2023 body, it isn't necessarily the body of 100 years ago, much less 10, 20, 30,000 years ago prior to agriculture. And so whatever environmental milieu we were swimming in, in our evolutionary track, we're quite a ways from it. And I think that oftentimes when you look in scientific literature, it is biased towards only considering the composition, the outlay of the modern human. Yeah. The current norm. The current norm. And I think you touch on this even in terms of how much movement we had, right? That a hunter-gatherer, 24,000 steps a day. Yeah. That is a very different energy output movement practice than what we experience today. And you know from working on a farm, (laughs) from being involved in raising your own food, there's just a lot more energy expended in daily tasks when not when everything isn't outsourced to, you know, a drive to the grocery store. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Yes, I, I think that that is actually just a really important thing to begin to tease out, especially as we look at the reasons why. And, and, and again, and I think you do a really good job of not pointing at any one reason within the book, but why we have had such precipitous declines in fertility. And you have something that's very multifactorial. And I doubt we're ever going to put our finger on it and say, well, it's this, but we are part of a part of a deeply changing environment. And, you know, one of the things that that we talked about at the beginning was that there's this relationship between us and our environment, our food environment, our living environment, our movement environment. And so we know that we can't say, well, this is why, and it's not going to be a single reductionist reason anyway. And so I think actually one of the beautiful things of the book is that it kind of fires on all cylinders that, okay, let's take a really good look at diet, but let's also take a peek at a little bit of a little bit of movement and a little bit of the toxins that we are exposed to even, even trying our best in today's modern world. Yeah, that, that as well as 
you know, some different lifestyle factors, your digestive health, how well are you digesting and absorbing nutrients, um, your sleep habits, like, are you exposing yourself to lots of unnatural light? Mm -hmm. That's going to affect your melatonin and that affects your reproductive hormones. Um, what is your history with uh, birth control? Mm-hmm. Have you been on hormonal birth control? That is by design an endocrine disruptor. And there is, and I'll have to credit Lisa for contributing most of that portion of the book, but there is a long period of time whereby when you come off of hormonal contraceptions, it, it takes a while for your body to return to normal hormone production and return to normal ovulatory function. And women are not told this, right? Nope. It's like There's stay no on the pill. Mm-hmm. You stay on the pill up until you want to conceive. And it's there's no discussion that there's a time period, a known research-defined time period for the return of your cycle and thus the return of your fertility. So if you're relying up until the point that you want to conceive on hormonal contraception to not conceive, then I hope you have planned ahead for what you're going to do in that interim period. And I hope you're not disappointed that you're not conceiving right away because a lot of couples aren't. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with you. It's just that your body hasn't resumed hormone production, Um, except in the case when you were put on the pill to control or try to, you know, essentially they just want to cover up your symptoms, right? But to control for some sort of menstrual irregularity or some sort of issue. So they just, oh, just you go on the pill. That's like the solution for everything, right? Just go on the pill. Mm -hmm. And then you come off of it and guess what? That same underlying problem is still there. So there, that does still need to be addressed. It's not like it magically went away during all those months or years that you were on it. Um, so that is something that we also try to cover in the book is kind of like planning around that intentionally sort of preparing for a time period of pause. This is a perfect time to prepare for conception and to, to rebuild your nutrient stores because the pill also depletes I, many nutrients. I wanted stores. to make sure that we, we touched that not only does it deplete nutrient yeah. stores, but it often depletes those nutrients, which are most critical to fertility. Um, exactly. Exactly. And that's worrisome. Uh, to say the least. So the, you want to be going doubling down even more on the nutrient-dense foods we highlight in the book um, if you have been a long-term user of hormonal contraceptives or have recently come off of them. And um, just you have to be patient with your body during that time frame as well. Um, it's, it's doing a lot and it's it's working in your favor, but it's a thing where a certain amount of time actually has to pass for it to resume normal function. So be patient with yourself and and don't get down on yourself if things aren't coming back online as quickly um, as you'd like them to. Of course, we all know women who have, you know, been on the pill and they like come off of it one month and they're pregnant the next month. Like that also can happen, but that that's an exception, actually. That's that's more rare than you think. And I think a lot of this is about don't want to say preparing for the worst. I, I, this is about prepare. It's about creating an on-ramp to pregnancy. 
Um, and preparing to have an on-ramp, whether that has to do with getting off the pill or building nutrient stores after a vegan or vegetarian diet, or just because you really want to, to optimize, uh, that egg and sperm quality, as well as that subsequent pregnancy and postpartum period for you, for baby, for everybody involved. And so this is really about developing a bit of an on-ramp, a bit of a pause. And, you know, to go back to that idea, I think we have historically had a little bit of a pause beforehand, but all of a sudden it's just been like, oh, you're pregnant. Here's a prenatal vitamin. There's no sort of consideration in between, though I think that is shifting, especially as, as women plan a little bit more when they would like to conceive and, and begin to, to think about that too. And yeah, those of us that are becoming more prevalent. Yeah. It depends on who you're talking to though. Right. Because you know, the, the people who aren't listening to your podcast, (laughs) yeah, that that's a significant portion of the U S and you know, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So Hmm. this is why again, Hmm like supporting optimal health is important regardless of if you're planning to conceive right away or not, because lots of pregnancies happen that are unplanned. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I do think that that's important to remember and, and it, you and I do oftentimes exist in, in bubbles. And so I actually think that brings up a really good question, which is how does this sort of how does this information make its way out of the the sort of biohacking, more health-focused community and into not just the general populace, but also into more into the hands of more practitioners, um, more fertility doctors, more nurses, more people that are actually working within the space? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, part of why we wrote the book in the manner that we did. I mean, we have thousands, literally thousands of citations. Um, I think our total was over 2,600, but many of our citations are actually citing more than just uh, one study. We just have one little (laughs) numerical footnote at the end of those sentences, but sometimes it's multiple studies that we're citing in a single statement. And part of the reason that we wanted to so heavily point to the literature is that a lot of these things are not common knowledge, Um, but it's not just our opinion. We're not pulling this out of thin air. There is strong data to support a lot of our conclusions. I would say all of our conclusions, but, you know, um, even though it's not common knowledge among practitioners, it should be. And if we really want to do the best for our clients, we should be educating them. But again, nutrition training in particular is not a part of a default part of all medical schools. If it is, it's usually like a single three credit class. Um, So what is that teaching you? Like dietary guideline type stuff. Um, I should know having done four years and and a year long internship in that conventional indoctrination, I I would know, like, if you're only going to get a single class, it's not going to be the best of the best. You're not going to (laughs) be really exposed to critical thinking about nutrition, that's for sure. Um, Moreover, many practitioners do not have training in 
the in a healthy menstrual cycle, what that looks like, signs of fertility, how that's reflective of things like egg quality. You know, we rely so heavily on different laboratory markers. And actually, we do have data that the menstrual cycle does reflect pretty accurately uh, what you find from some of these lab lab tests, right? I mean, it's all right there, um, but that's not known. Uh, So I do hope that some practitioners pick it up as well. It's certainly uh, (laughs) lengthy enough of a book um, and I think written at a slightly higher level that I hope it speaks Mm -hmm. to them as well because we desperately do need to improve fertility care and have it go beyond just like there is a, here's this $10 or $20,000 treatment option. Um, Lifestyle is often just lost over or if they're recommending anything it's probably one of those one-liners they found from scanning the literature which may be something like eat a mediterranean diet or eat a plant-based diet and that's the end of the conversation yes and i then think this is something that i've really taken note of is that a lot of this is like playing a game of telephone that that then gets parroted amongst many practitioners without anybody actually having looked at the literature or understanding the yes. root of that recommendation and i think that that's one of the more insidious things and i don't mean i don't mean this at the practitioner level i mean this at a at a much wider group level i'm not talking about any one individual but that these recommendations get parroted um, without further yes. further research being given to them. Exactly. And so yep, and it's put this- really hard to undo those. Um, if we've learned anything from the you know '80s dietary guidelines, I mean, I still have to spend time in this book debunking myths about salt and fat yes. and cholesterol. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like here we go again. But it needs to be stated again because it's still not the widely still not widely held knowledge everyone is still clinging to some of these old incorrect pieces of information Mm -hmm. and it becomes deeply embedded within the culture number one um and but also within practice within medical practice and and so it's not just patients it's also practitioners um there's one last thing i really want to touch on because i think it's really important which is mitochondria. And I, I, I do, I do want to tease at that a little bit. Um, and we haven't gotten a chance to, because I think it's so critical and actually just even so striking, uh, the mitochondrial density of an egg is, is incredible. And a lot of this actually comes back to looking at mitochondrial health, um, which I think is actually a really good example of something that is an interplay of diet, of circadian biology, of environment and exposure to different toxins and, and, and kind Absolutely. of fits at the root of a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, our, our mitochondria are the you know, energy producing portions of our cells and um, egg cells or human oocytes being so large, they have the highest density of mitochondria of any other cell in the body. Um, They need a lot of energy to grow properly um, and to support all of the incredible reactions that are simultaneously taking place um, at and after fertilization 
and as it transforms into an embryo. Uh, so low, any, any nutrients that support mitochondrial function also support egg quality. Likewise, sperm quality as well. There's huge overlap um, in all of them, even if there's some little nitpicky specifics that apply more to one than the other. Um, so antioxidants, of which there are many, um, but antioxidants, of course, are helping to keep inflammation at bay. Your blood sugar levels can affect mitochondrial function. The mitochondria can actually face what's called like glucose overload when there's too much blood sugar and starts dysfunctioning. So you want to have blood sugar in a healthy range. A whole host of B vitamins are important for mitochondrial function as well as minerals. Um, so it's absolutely vital that we start paying attention again, if we want to go back to this sort of at like a elementary level, the things that provide us with energy, and I'm not talking about caffeine or like the fake energy you get from a sugar high, but things that actually help you feel sustained energy and vitality, cough, protein, <laughs> they are supportive of mitochondrial function. And you look at our most nutrient dense foods on the planet, uh, vast majority bar dark leafy greens are foods of animal origin, which by default are high protein. Those have a lot of these antioxidants and micronutrients that support your mitochondria. They also have the protein, which helps with your blood sugar balance and keeping inflammation at bay. Um, so it all like it all comes full circle. I wish it was that easy to just like <laughs> write that in a book and be like, there you go. That's it. That, that's all there is to it. We have to like painstakingly pull every single reference on all of the things I just mentioned. Um, but it it really does often boil down to some simple takeaways after all of that work. Yeah, I was really struck as you were explaining that just how simple it can be and just how well nature has kind of laid it out for us and, and the history of the foods that we evolved eating can be. And also the... And, you know, deceivingly simple. And so there is a lot of complexity yeah. in actually just listening to our body and those things that give us the most amount of vitality and energy and life force are also those yeah. that are going to hearken back to supporting our fertility. Exactly. I mean, I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. And, I, you know, one of the things I really wanted out of this is I want people to dive into the book for the details, because I think that every chapter is worth reading. And, you know, as somebody who knows quite a bit about this, I was surprised at all the things that I did not know and that I learned over the course of this book. And and I, I actually kept a running list of things that I was like, oh my gosh, I am so surprised <laughs> and fascinated to hear that. And so I want people to pick up the book. And I also hope that this was sort of a, a message of Pick up the book, whether or not you are thinking about trying to conceive in the in the near future and whether or not you are male yeah. or female, because what is in here is a lot of vitality. Yeah, well, thank you for that uh, glowing endorsement. Um, people always ask me, you know, do well, do you have a book that's like for this topic or this topic or this topic? Um, really, I do feel like with this book since it's not pregnancy specific for the first time, we're really talking about supporting your overall health. So when it comes to supporting overall health, 
you are also by default supporting your hormone balance and supporting your fertility. So I have some people on, you know, Instagram, my DMs, like I'm done having kids and I'm still going to get your book. I'm like, good, because this is also supporting this healthy interim before you enter menopause. Um, that's like a whole other topic. I don't know. Maybe I'll delve into that when the, when I hit that myself. Um, but that setting yourself up for these like easeful transitions, if I've learned anything over the years, it's like building up your nutrient stores before pregnancy improves your experience of pregnancy, which improves your experience and recovery postpartum and your breastfeeding experience, which improves your chances of conception the next round. It's all like one after the other, these cycles, your body requires so many nutrients to function well. There's really no, like, tell me the downside of prioritizing nutrient dense foods at all of these different life phases, right? Like this is the roadmap to maintain good health and vitality. Um, regardless of your age. And sure, if there ever is something like a book on menopause, um, I don't know if I'll be the one to write it or not. I'm sure it'll be hitting on a lot of similar things, just the supporting research to support the mechanism for why or to what degree that has this effect would be different. But I'm pretty sure it would be a lot of the same sorts of things, you know, especially when you start looking into, I mean, just at the basics of macronutrient balance. Mm-hmm. A lot of this stuff holds true literally at all life stages. Yes. So increased yeah. need for protein. Uh, mm-hmm. Increased need to look at blood sugar regulation within the exactly. confines. I was actually, I kind of hope secretly that you'll write a perimenopause menopause book someday. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe someday we'll see. Someday, someday. Let's, let's put that down the road. But um Thank you. Thank you for coming back and and chatting with me. And most of all, thank you for writing this book. I, I really mean it when I say that I feel like somebody has written the book um, and it, yeah. it you and Lisa both and that it, it hits on every, it fires on all cylinders and it hits such a broad range of topics that it it is an incredible resource for anyone that picks it up. And, and I don't think the subject needs to be touched again until there's there's you know significantly more research uh, uh looking at it and i really appreciate the depth with which you researched this book and just how deep into those studies you went and i hope that this podcast illuminates the links that you went to to actually understand the data that was out there and not just the data as it was presented to yeah to the scientific community well Thank you, because that is the most painstaking part of the process is uh, finding the research, thinking about what are the right questions to ask, reading a study, assessing whether the findings, like whether the methods were uh, trustworthy or reliable, what the holes might be, how the findings are applicable, how to write about it in terms that a normal person can understand. And then how that fits into as a whole, the main point you want to talk about, like you also have to continually zoom out. So um, yes, it's I, I receive your compliment and it makes all those times of, okay, I read five studies today and I wrote a single sentence. Great. Um, worth it. 
Yeah, because there's a lot of there's a lot of that in this process. Yeah. It's a it's a slow slog to the finish line. Well, thank you for doing it for us. And I I mean I really do think that this is a benefit, um, not just to this generation, but to the next two generations and and well beyond that, since nutrition is an intergenerational linkage. And so I I am yes. really appreciative. Um, for those that are still listening, book comes out today that this podcast is coming out. Um, and we'll have links to that in the show notes um, and to your website to order the book and to you on Instagram and Lisa as well. Is there anything that I'm leaving out? Did we leave out the title of the book this entire conversation? Probably. We might have, but I, <laughs> I, I will absolutely put it at the introduction. But please, why don't you give us the title? Perfect. Well, now that it's out, uh, it's called Real Food for Fertility. So please look it up on Amazon and snag yourself a copy. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming back, Lily. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.